the best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number 18. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. 430 years ago yesterday, the man we know as St. John of the Cross uh, slipped from this world into eternity. Um, he was uh, an extraordinary figure, uh, a major figure of what's called the Catholic Reformation in Spain, uh, one of the 36 doctors of the Church. And uh, he's probably known best, of course, for his writings. Uh, he was mentored by uh, Teresa of Avila. Um, but I wanted to spend some time today getting to know him better. And so I've asked Dr. John Love uh, to join me. Uh, John is an associate professor of systematic and moral theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. He wrote his doctoral thesis on the Eucharistic spirituality of St. John of the Cross. And I have to let you know, uh, he is the husband of my oldest daughter, Alexis. Uh, they have eight children and uh, for, looking forward to seeing them come this Christmas time. Hey, John. Hey, how's it going, Al? That's going well. Or hear you, I should say. Yeah. Hey, um, let's talk about St. John of the Cross. You got interested in St. John of the Cross really at a young age. Why? Well, um, my dad gave me the book. Um, It was an important book to him, um, you know, in his own spiritual development. And so he told me later that he was sort of waiting for the time when he thought uh, it was right uh, to give me John of the Cross and... I had started reading Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle, and I was getting kind of towards the end of that book. Um, and and so he found his moment, and he, he gave it to me, and, and that was it was the beginning of a lifelong um, appreciation, yeah. love for John of the Cross. How how old were you? I was about seventeen. Yeah, and you've continued reading uh, John and and Teresa since. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I've probably read. John of the Cross has collected works all through in English about 10 or 12 times. Wow. And uh, you did your doctoral work on his Eucharistic theology, which uh, many people wonder uh, if, as a mystic, yeah. he had much use for the sacraments, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and that word mystic is is strange and funny, and I think, you know, we're scared of it. We don't know what to do right, with it. Right, right. Um, what it means, I think— um, fundamentally, is there's a, there's a kind of immediacy. Um, you know, there's a kind of direct contact with God. Um, we we are aware of His presence. We we know Him. We we hear Him. Um, those, uh, that that sort of direct contact is, mm-hmm. is what sort of constitutes mysticism. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think oh, you know, I think a lot of people think oh, well, no, that's not for me or something like that. Um, what I found, and a lot of my research. Um, about uh, St. John's Eucharistic spirituality was was going back to the testimonies of people who knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said he would spend all night in Eucharistic adoration. Interesting. That his favorite thing was to celebrate the Mass, and mm-hmm. um, that he instructed the, the young Carmelites who were just, you know, novices, just training up, um, that they had to, they had to be close to the Eucharist. There's a lovely, lovely story. It was right... In the last few months of his life, um, there was this huge fire that came to kind of threaten the monastery uh, where uh, John was. And he told all of the other monks, go into the chapel and pray. 
right? Go in front of the Eucharist and pray. And John went out to the fire. Hmm. And so he prayed right where the fire was sort of threatening the monastery, and they prayed in the um, in the chapel where the Eucharist was. And and it was a sort of miraculous um, salvation from the fire. You know, they said you know, the the guy who was there, Martin, uh, said it looked like the fire was totally covering him, and you know we thought he was he was not going to make it. Yeah. Uh, but then all of a sudden the fire just died out and swept back and everything was saved. Um, and sort of John was trying to live this realization that like Jesus, the King, the Savior is present in the Eucharist. Yes. yes. Um, and, and we just need to ask him to help us. He's yeah. here and, and he wants to help us. And, and he did. He saved them from the fire that day. Beautiful. That is a great story. Uh, when people think of St. Uh, John of the Cross, they often think of the dark night of the soul um, That's right. What does that mean? I mean, does it mean just um, the darkness that often accompanies uh, any great loss, or is it depression? Yeah. Is it uh, what? What does the phrase actually? How does it function in his thinking? Sure, sure. You know, I think um, for John of the Cross, it means something more precise mm-hmm. than than we use it for. I think yeah. you know we use it, and I mean, you can hear. You know, news anchors on major networks yeah. talk about it was a real dark night of the soul, and they mean it was hard, it was tough, and right. it was sad. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, John of the Cross means um, specifically these periods of our Christian life where we have done everything we can do, we have put all of our effort in, and now at that moment, God intervenes and He begins to work in us in ways that only He can work. And what's happening is actually purification and progress in our spiritual life, in our holiness. But it feels like the end of fruitful prayer. It yeah. feels like a dark night, right? And my soul, I feel abandoned. I feel alone. Yes. I feel like I'm, I've, I've lost the way. And, yeah. and John, in the first place, gives tips tools, signs, you know, here's how you know if you're depressed. Yeah. Here's how you know if you're just kind of an angry, dark, melancholic personality. Yeah. Here's how you know if God is purifying you, right? Because depending on which thing you're dealing with, you you have different, um, you know, t- actions, you have different tools, different responses you should make. But he kind of opens us up to this possibility that God can purify us, in a way that, that we can't do for ourselves. Um, and what we need to do in that situation is persevere, wait on the Lord, let God change us, transform us in his love. Uh, and, and that is the, the path towards continued progress, continuing to get closer to God, actually. Hmm. So, that, so that is, so we have that assurance from him that even in those moments of abandonment, which can go on for quite a long period of time, too. Uh, That's, right. That's that, right. That God is, in fact, at work doing something, some form of reclamation, transformation, healing uh, in our lives. We yeah. don't feel it, yeah. but and, it's he's doing right. it. Right. Well, and in, in a certain sense, um, when a person is experiencing this purification that God is doing, yeah. you know, that John calls dark night, it feels like the opposite of what it is. Right. 
Right. It feels like God is absent, and I've turned away, and I, I must have done something wrong. Yeah. yeah. Because my prayer is not fruitful and full of good feelings, and yeah. um, I, I feel like I'm not faithful. I feel like a lack of desire for prayer. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's all become distasteful to me. Um, Teresa Vavila talks about it, too, um, in Interior Castle, this sort of transition from prayer that I kind of do by my effort versus prayer that comes as God's gift to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and John of the Cross will say, um, it feels like God is absent, but the analogy he uses there is God is like the sun. And if you look at the sun, the sun looks dark. Not because the sun is dark, but because your eyes are weak. Yeah, yeah. You can't see that much light, and it overwhelms your senses, and it, so it looks dark to you, not because the sun is dark, but because your eyes are weak. Yeah. Um, so we're not recommending that anybody actually stare at the sun no. and go blind, but yeah. right. <laughs> but by analogy, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, God is infinite, and and I, especially before I'm used to His presence, it's really difficult for me to be in His presence. Yeah, it's painful for me. And what's happening is, as I come close to Him, as I as I gaze upon Him, I'm being changed and transformed. I'm being strengthened, and so eventually. God doesn't look dark to me, but it takes time. It takes purification of me, uh, of the soul, to be to become used to God's presence, mm-hmm. to to become used to looking at Him. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, d- 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 he is renowned for his uh, s- his style, right? I mean, he is he's actually a very good writer. Yeah, his his poetry is sort of exalted to the heights. Um, so, like, um, I think it was in the 20th century, the sort of official um, literary society of the country of Spain said, there are two poets who exemplify the Spanish language, El Cid yep. and John of the Cross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, El Cid writes the kind of, like, epic poem that's sort of like the, the source narrative of, like, what it means to be Spanish, right. you know. Yeah. Um, like Song of Roland or something, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but for Spanish. And then John of the Cross writes this Christian mystical poetry, and it's so excellent in Spanish that, you know, even though a kind of secular society doesn't really want to promote Christian theology, kind of they don't really have a choice because it's just so good. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, how, does he translate well into English? I'd say, like, pretty well, and especially in terms of, like, the ideas. I think you can get the ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of John's poetry is dialogue, you know, or, or sort of the story of how I was pursuing God, but really he was pursuing me, um, and eventually I kind of figured that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, other, other sort of structures or, or contexts, too. He, you know, he'll write poetry, which he calls the, rom- the romances, which is this sort of imagination of what it was like, the conversation between the Father and the Son before Mm, creation. Really? Okay. Um, Yeah. And, you know, like, we don't know for sure. It's his sort of imagination based on what he knows about the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. But it's it's a lovely um, kind of hypothesis. He he was part of the the renewal of the Carmelites. That's right. That's right. that didn't always make him a welcome uh, companion. <laughs> T- tell us some of what happened with him. Yeah, sure. 
Um, Teresa of Avila sort of spearheads this reform of the Order of Carmel. Yeah. Um, and then after a little while, you know, she's, she wants to move this reform from the women to the men, and so that's, that's when John of the Cross kind of gets involved. She comes and sort of is looking for, for Carmelite men who would like to be part of the reform. Yeah. What she says, I mean, just in, this is really quick and basic, but what she says is, our rule of life says we should live this way. We're actually going to do that instead of what Carmelite communities have been doing, mm-hmm. which is pretty far away from what the rule says we're supposed to do. So I think we can all understand, you know, if you have a group of people who kind of say that yeah. in, in substance, you know, and then they get kind of popular and successful and start founding all these monasteries. And all these people are attracted to this sort of authentic Carmelite life. Not only am, am I kind of nonplussed, but I'm yeah. a little jealous, too. John, I got to end it there, unfortunately. Thank you so much. <laughs>